1: So last week we continued moving in the direction, and I'm going to review that with you in a moment, of how to have the kind of relationship with other people founded upon love and what that would look like. But today we're then going to continue that thought by this, that there's going to come people in your life who will become enemies in your life. And he was speaking to them because he knew that there would be some tremendous enemies, enemies that would drag them off and then put them into a fiery trial. And it wasn't a strange thing because it happened to so many of them. And whether or not they went to the fire, it definitely disrupted their life, their career, their businesses, their families, their connections. Everything about them was to be scrambled forever. And yet they needed to be strong for Christ. And in fact, during that time of strength and standing strong for the Lord, actually the church flourished and grew. And so with all of that, that's where we are today. Is we're dealing with relationships and it's born on love. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to go quickly as I'm going to just kind of outline what we covered last week and then get into some meat to prepare us for loving other people. Maybe right now you have good relationships with everyone. Maybe God is using today sovereignly in your life because he knows that tomorrow someone's going to turn against you at work, on your team, in your neighborhood, maybe even in your marriage. I don't know, but I know this, God is not a fool-hearted God. He loves you so much and he cares for you as a person that he wants you to be prepared. So while this is a timeless truth from years and years and years ago, I also want you to know it's bridged to the very current life that you and I live today. So get ready. God knows something that's going to come into our lives and he wants us to respond in a proper way. So let's look at the passage since you have it opened already. Romans chapter 12. And let's look at it. So what about this relationship with others? Well, it starts out by saying, let love be without hypocrisy or let it be authentic. My opinion is that this is actually setting the stage almost like an umbrella over all these other truths. In other words, let love be without hypocrisy by doing these things authentically or genuinely. Which then implies that we as Christians, that sometimes the more we know of the word and we know how to manipulate the word, that we can actually do what I like to call sin management. In other words, on the outside, we can look pretty spiritual, we can look pretty righteous, we can look pretty holy. But inside, we're nothing but uh, fermenting unholiness and unrighteousness, kind of a sewer going on. But we are so disciplined that we know how to orchestrate looking good in front of other people. Yet in reality, we're grieving the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we can grieve Him to the point that just makes it seem like He's out of our life completely. But worse than that, it's never sustainable. And very soon, we're then seen to be the hypocrite that we don't want to be, that others call us to be. And God says, be authentic. So the issue we're talking about is love. Now, park on that for a moment. Now, when we love other people, it's not like I manufacture this man-made love and I read all these books out there on how to love other people. What it really is, the love of God is shed abroad in my heart, Scripture says, and then it should be shed abroad to others, and that we should love more and more, not with our love, but His love. What I urge you to do in your own time, which I think you'll find to be very fascinating, is take what you're going to get through Scripture today, and now I want you to take the life of Christ and find as many examples are teaching principles that he gave in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that will match what I'm teaching you right now. How did he model this? Now, why is that important? It's not just to say, oh, that truth agrees with what he did in the Gospels, therefore, the Bible must be accurate. Well, that's good. That's important. But more than that is this. Since Christ lives in you as a Christian, that means he then, who already is all of this, can live it out in all these truths. So that makes everything you're learning today doable. Doable. That's the beauty of this. That's the passion of this. It's all doable. And it's even more doable because it's him doing it so he gets all the glory. You have all the power to do it and you get all the results. Now that doesn't mean your enemies turn into your bosom buddies but it does mean this, that you and God will have such a sense of peace and intimacy that you can't get any other way. And that's what makes this study so exciting for me is that this is what Jesus is and this is what he did and he's inside of me. So it works and it will work even if it means you and I going to our own proverbial cross and crucifixion, even when we are. So again, the first part of it is to be authentic. So it says, let love be without hypocrisy. But to know that we love without hypocrisy and authenticity, we have to understand that love also has boundaries in it. It's not a willy-nilly love, it has boundaries. I've heard about some going on a cruise, some have been on a cruise, some are planning for a cruise... And here's one thing I know about a cruise. In most cases, other than maybe the wheelhouse and the engine room, they tell you that whatever you pay for your cruise, you can go anywhere on that ship you want, upper deck, lower deck, front of the boat, bow, stern, whatever. The only thing you can't do is you can't get off that boat in the middle of the ocean and survive. You've got to stay on the boat. That tells me that there's boundaries with love, that yes, God says we're to love everyone and we're loved powerfully and authentically, etc. But the boundaries of how we do it And how it's displayed is all found in Scripture. And to do that, it has to be selective. So to do that, it says to abhor that which is evil. To do that, we need to know what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's evil. And then once we see what it is, we look at the evil and we say, I don't want to be a part of it. I don't want my eyes to be a part of this. I don't want to look upon anything that's wicked. And then secondly, I need to cling to that which is good. Now, that's a choice in your life as a Christian. He gives you the power. Jesus did all of that. And that's what he wants. Is for us to be selective. Then the third is, it says, love must demonstrate tender affection. In the passage it says, devoted, and that's what to do, to one another, that's who to do it with, and it says one another, so it's kind of like encompassing everything and everyone, not just, um, not just certain people in our life. But we're to do it how? With brotherly love. So now that I understand what the abhorring of evil is, I'm still to love that person. If I'm to cling to what is good, I'm still to love that person who's out there. And I do it with brotherly love. So now what you want to do, take a moment now, and I'd like you to go through a catalog of people that might be in your contact manager, maybe in your phone or people that you know in your directory. And maybe right now you have someone with whom you're struggling. A husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister. Maybe it's someone that's on your ball team. Maybe it's someone that's on your works team that might be, maybe a classmate. It may be even someone in this church, heaven forbid, but it might be that case. And so now take these truths and run that through as well. You want to love them and you want to do it with a tender compassion, tender affection. Well, then you move up and it says love must honor others. So if you say, okay, I want to brotherly love them. How do I brotherly love them? Well, the next verse says this. The next part of the verse says this. Give preference to one another in honor. It simply means honor others. That give preference means be first in line, be the leader to one another in showing honor to them. Now in a few minutes, we're going to open up that concept of how do I honor them. We'll talk a little about rejoicing and a little bit about weeping with them to really show them honor. And if it helps you, maybe the word honor is a word that we don't use very much. Maybe it would be the word value, that I see value in people. And when I look at people, and I hope you do too, we would look at people and say there's got to be something in them of value that they have that can add value to my life and so I want to give value back to them so I want to be first in line to honor them by giving value to them what can I do to add value like we learned last week what could I do to breathe life into them aloha into them and I'll tell you that will change your life when you start thinking that way you're going to become the very person you so much have always wanted to be and here's some things some principles that will help you do that So it talks about honoring others. But then it talks about doing it with enthusiasm. It says not lagging behind in diligence... In other words, you don't pick and choose. It's not you're on one day and you're off the next day. It's that we are enthusiastic about this. We're passionate about this. Our eyes are like radar looking for people that we could honor, looking for people that we can cling to that are good, looking for those that we might need to step aside from for a while, in love, praying for them, but maybe not getting involved in their activities. It's We're passionate about this. We're enthusiastic about this. We're a candle that's lit so we can light another candle. So enthusiastic, but... That's not enough because we know, just like Chuck Swindoll's book said, strike the original match, that there'll be other people that'll try to blow out that match while we keep striking that match. Do you know somebody like that? The more you try to do good, it seems like they keep trying to blow out your flame of love toward them. Do you know someone like that? It often happens in marriages, sometimes before there's a separation. Sometimes it happens when kids, before they pack up and leave the house, you try to do all that you can and they kind of blow back and they try to blow out your passion to try to love them. And I believe that the Lord knew that. That you'll have people that were once loyal, but now they're disloyal, once worked for you and now work against you. And here's what he says. I like this. He says, rejoicing in hope. In other words, as long as that person can wiggle their little finger, there is still hope for that person. There is hope for that relationship. There's always hope in Christ. That even if that person abandons you forever and you die or they die and you are separated and never can get on the same page, that's okay. That's okay. Because the Lord says, you have hope in me for all eternity. But he doesn't stop there. He says, persevering in tribulation. Underline that. And that's really the person who really loves. I think the test of real love is to stay with it no matter what. And my model again is Christ. When he was up on the cross, he could have called down how many angels to wipe out those guys who were voting or betting on his clothes. He didn't do all of that. He didn't say, enough is enough. And he walked away he stayed there all the way to the end because scripture says in order for him to prove his love for us, he had to die for us. And it says he proved his love for us when we were sinners, not when we were hungering and thirsting after God. So he persevered. And that love is inside of us. And so again, that's part of enduring to other people. Now if you want to circle the phrase devoted to prayer because I really think it's probably the most difficult thing to do is to endure loving someone in the midst of tribulation with that person without really connecting to the Lord for communion and power and strength and wisdom and how do you do this? Let me spin it another way. It very well could be that you're loving others and maybe that person isn't so much blowing his or her breath to blow out your candle out, that kind of thing. But it could be that you're so wrapped up in tribulations of just life that all of a sudden you kind of bring home all the problems on the job And now you dump it on your family. And so again, you're not really persevering in love to them. You're not enduring all of this. You're just bringing all your garbage from work home and you think that you'll feel better by dumping on them. Now, I don't mean to be too much of a counselor, but this might help you. If you ever give a problem to someone else who didn't cause the problem and can't solve the problems, you burden them with something that they now will carry until they finally release the problem. So you're actually adding more burdens to them rather than lightening their load for them. So it says here, endure all of this, be devoted to prayer, and rejoice in the fact that there still is hope. But that's not all. He also says to be generous. It talks about contributing to the needs of the saints. So maybe now you don't have so much of, a, of, a, of an enemy. But watch this very carefully. It could be that someone else has experienced a withdrawal in their life from someone who is helping them but no longer is. So in other words, they have the enemy, you have it by association, but not by fact. So now your job is to come alongside those who have been abandoned, to help them out. And that's where it says contributing to the needs of the saints. Because sometimes when enemies come in a person's life, when there are people that turn from a friend to an enemy, that that person feels very much alone. What do they need? Now, when you hear contributing to the needs of the saints, it's logical that we would think that means money, give them money, give them money. 'Cause money is quick often, it's easy to get to, there's not a lot of sweat we have to do to give it to them. We'll sweat to get it, some more sweat to keep it and manage it. I get all of that, but at the same time to give it to them is kinda of, it's a quick little feel. But here it says contributing, which in the Greek it means having things in common with. I like to say it and I'll say this again. We need to feel their pain. And yet we have the resources to maybe lighten their pain. And so whatever it is, is it time? Is it to watch their kids? Is it to help them find a job? Is it to help do something for them around the house that they can't do? What is it that we can contribute to them because they have a need? Now listen carefully. The issue says need. It doesn't say greed. And to me, if you want an easy definition for what a need is, a need is something you need as a basic need to stay alive. All right? So think about that for a moment. All right, the next is that we must be hospitable here. Love must pursue hospitality. I love that phrase, practicing hospitality. If you see that in your Bible and you have the same version I do, see where it says practicing? I would like you to underline the last three letters of the word practicing because that's I-N-G. That means it's going on. That means you are hospitable wherever you go. There was a lady yesterday at our seminar, a very uh, um, a prominent lady in our Christian community, more retired today than she was. And she was taking the assessment on spiritual gifts, and one of them dealt with hospitality. And she cornered me in the back very wisely, and she said, you know, in the question that says here, do you take people into your home, or do you welcome them to your home, that kind of a question, to determine whether you had hospitality, she says, I live in a very tiny apartment, she says we have no parking for them So I can't bring people into my house To be able to do this So I, I don't how do, you, how do you make this work? It sounds like you need to change this And I said you are so smart Because really we put the word Take them into your home Because we kind of quickly think That's what hospitality is But in reality it means Take them into your heart So if you don't have a home What do you do? She says I take people out all the time After church if they have a need I'll take them here I'll make sure they get there I said you are a hospitable lady I said, in fact, what's the middle word in the word hospital? Spit. But it's not. It's hospital, all right? Hospital is what? It's that you have hurting people around you and you want to have them come to you and in some measure relieve their pain. And so when I think of a doctor, I don't think of a doctor who only works in a hospital or in his office. I think of a doctor who takes his skills wherever he goes. I'm reminded of the lady I saw recently on the internet. You might have seen her too. She was uh, going to her wedding in her full wedding gown. There was a horrible accident. She jumped out of the car with her whole wedding gown and she runs to the injured victim that was out on the street. Did you see that? That tells me she's a hospitable person. She loves strangers and wants to do something for them. Now, this is generally in the context of loving others, but I need to kind of... Put us more in a direction now. What about even more those that are going to be against us? So I want to talk now about relating to our enemies. And you might see it. Now, to do that, you, mean, you might need to ask yourself, what would be an enemy to you? Now, some, nobody's your enemy unless they're an enemy of God. Maybe you're that spiritual. So I have no enemies. Only those who are enemies of God. Well, I, I applaud you for that. But maybe some of you say, it just takes someone who votes against you in a meeting. They become an immediate enemy to you. You you decided to label them that. And that doesn't make them an enemy. But on the other hand, there are people, and here's the term, that are working knowingly or unknowingly, key phrase, knowingly or unknowingly, that are taking your life away. They're kind of sucking the aloha. They're keeping that breath of life away from you. They are devaluing you. They're diminishing you. They're loading you up, whatever that is. Now, You also need to know, some may be enemies for a long time, some for life. Some may be an enemy this week, and maybe not next week. So I want you to know that enemies can come and go, and there's intensities of enemies. But I want us to know, how do we deal with them? What does God tell us to do in order to deal with them properly? All right. To do that, I hope you have your Bibles open, because I'm going to do something that's kind of weird in uh, hermeneutics, which is uh, the proper interpretation of Scripture, but watch what what I do here, and then I think it'll make more sense. I'm going to go to the end first before I go to the beginning, all right? We're looking at Romans chapter 12, and I want you to look at verse 21. That's the last verse in the chapter, okay? Here's what it says. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Would you read that out loud with me? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now I want to ask that, I want to ask a question to that verse. My question is this, how do I not let evil overcome me? How do I let good overcome me? Now with that in mind, now I'm going to go up to verse 14, which is the beginning of the paragraph of this last part of the, ver- of the chapter, and it's going to now explain to me how do I overcome the evil that's around me by doing good, and how do I stop evil from overcoming me? With that now, let's go back to the little outline I provided for you. And I hope you have it. So number one is, love must be kind. Now you'll hear that and read that in 1 Corinthians 13. We, we get all of that. But here it says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So the, uh, perhaps the problem that comes against us is what happens to us. And now how do we respond to it? Maybe I should say this to you. I don't know who's listening to me today. I, I hope all of you are and those may be on radio and the internet and all that. We will have enemies. How many of you would go public right now by just raising your hand without a name that would say that either in the past or in the present you have someone who is devaluing you, diminishing you, working against you in some measure, maybe not all their life, but maybe more recently, but in a sense they are your enemy at this time. That you you feel their enemy type activity and emotion and energy you have that going on right now in your life. Would you raise your hand? How many of you like that? Okay. The rest of you that don't have your hand up, I, I, I am so happy for you. I, I'm genuinely happy for you. But I also want you to know that it's likely that somewhere in your life that may pop up. So please lean into this even more. So while you have the smooth seas, you'll probably be able to pay great attention to this, all right? The others are already thinking about their enemies, and they're hard to to kind of balance this out. But I want you to know we will have enemies. We will be hated, mistreated, misunderstood. We'll be lied about, gossiped about, and in every measure... Whatever they say or do or don't say or don't do, we will be hurt deeply by it. It will come into our life. So how do you bless someone that curses you? Well, to try to put it as simply as possible, when I am being cursed by them and I want to bless them back, I really want to say, Lord, I want you to do for them, watch this, what I want you to do for me. Now, you take that concept And you apply it the way it best fits for you. Lord, I want you to do for them what I want you to do for me. I want to have your mind on your enemies like they are my enemies so that I would love them as you would love them. So Lord, I want to connect with you upward because through that I will be able to have the proper thinking and emotions to more easily bless them outward. Now let me tell you what the natural response is. some can't see me but let's say that I'm a scale up here and I'm the center of the scale and one arm over here is one uh, uh, pallet of the scale and the other arm is the other pallet of the scale what generally happens is if someone hurts us okay they hurt us they do something that really bothers us then we often think the best way to deal with that hurt is to curse them now it could come as an actual profanity it also could come in some measure that we want them, watch this, to feel the same pain that we're feeling from them, but they're to feel it from me or at least someone else so they can experience the same hurt that we have. So when we hurt, we then curse. And generally what happens is the more we curse and they hurt us, we don't really engage biblically to try to help that. When we curse someone who's hurt us, it generally never helps and only exacerbates the problem. So what does God say? He says, when you're hurt, and you will be, and I will be, He says, in turn, replace the cursing for the blessing. It may help that situation. It will bring glory to God in His way. But more than anything, when you're blessing Him you will not then have the guilt afterwards for blessing them if you're not doing sin management blessing, but you're genuinely blessing them. If you curse them, you may feel good for a moment because you finally got them to be quiet or to get away from you or you're doing something. and Oh, good, I got one better than he got, you know. But when you walk away from that, since that sin, which it is, then you will experience guilt because sin is a function of the spirit, not always only of the mind. So now you're worse because you keep perpetuating that, and then you're exacerbating that, and the relationship goes nowhere. So if you're hurt, that's why scripture says we're to bless, and I hope that we'll do that. Now if you need examples and you say, well, okay, I get that with Jesus, you know, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's a blessing on the people that were doing all this stuff to Jesus. I get all of that, but you might say, well, that's him. Well, that's still the best example because that him is he in you. Okay, but if that's not going to work for you yet, let me take you back in the Bible in your mind. There was a story about a guy who was a little cocky, I think, a little prideful, had dreams about his family, particularly his brothers, and how that he would be great. And thought he was be really great. He was also the favored son of the dad. So he got the, this kind of a cool looking jacket at the time. Had all these different colors on it. Kind of when you walk by. You couldn't miss this guy. Coat of many colors. This is my son. Look at him. Woo. You know that kind of deal. So finally the brothers had it up to here. You know they couldn't stand it any longer. So they concocted a way where they would take him down. They were going to kill him. Put him in a big pit. And one of the brothers uh, said no, no, no. Let's not do that. At least he didn't die took him and then they sold him to a caravan of of cameleers that would then take to a far distant country. And so this now favored son broke the heart of the dad because he wasn't there. At the same time, he's separated from his very family and he's in another place. And then he at that time was thrown into jail for something he didn't do. And all that being said, later on it all came to head. And that guy by the name of Joseph looked back over at his brothers who were so fearful now because now Joseph could inflict revenge, could return evil to them for the evil that they did to him. They now He could now curse him because they hurt Joseph. In all of that, Joseph said those very profound words, and I hope you mark this down. He said this because this is the biblical way to look at it. You meant it to me for evil, brothers, but God meant it to me for good. And you know the real good is that Through all of that, Joseph was raised up and with all the wisdom that he had, he was able to preserve life for millions of people and particularly his own family during that famine.